Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Welcome to episode 116. I'm your host, Rebecca Larson. Well, now that we are outside my regular season, you get special Ask the Expert episodes with Steph. Now, Steph has lined up some amazing experts over the next seven episodes, and I know you are going to enjoy them. So keep checking social media to submit your questions. Now, on today's Ask the Expert, Steph asks one of your most requested historians and authors, Matt Lewis, your questions on Stephen and Matilda. Now, this is Matt's fifth appearance on the show, so we love it when he visits because he is a wealth of knowledge, and as you'll discover, he lets me pick on him like an older sister does on social media. Now, I know this subject is outside the Tudor period, but... It's fascinating royal history nonetheless, and I think you're really going to enjoy this topic. Now, before I pass it over to Steph, I have a few new patrons that I'd like to thank. Candace S., Megan M., and Nicole T. And, of course, I'd like to thank all of my extremely generous existing patrons. A full list of patrons can be found at my podcast website, which is TudorsDynastyPodcast.com. If you'd like to show your support, it would be greatly appreciated. Patrons receive access to the Tudor course and exclusive podcast content, as well as the ability to get free books, wallpaper, bookmarks, and so much more. Now you can find me on Patreon, which is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty. Then click become a patron for options. The money all goes back into the cost of running the show, research materials, and the like. So thank you very much. All right, let's turn it over to Steph and Matt. And now, Ask the Expert. Hello, and welcome to Ask the Expert. I'm your host, Steph Soar, and I'm here with author, historian, Matt Lewis. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thank you very much for having me, Steph. It's great to be back on, on Tudor's Dynasty. And I must say, it's very nice to be interviewed by you, having been told recently by Rebecca on social media that she considers me to be meh. Yeah. <laughs> it's very nice to talk to someone who might not consider me to just be meh. No, no, no. I am probably your biggest fan. I'm sorry to uh, offend anybody that's listening right now, but I definitely don't think that at all. So first things first, I want to just make sure that everybody knows what we're talking about today, because usually um, you are our resident Richard III Princes in the Tower expert. Uh, which you've got countless great books on that topic. But today we are strictly Stephen. We're going, we're going anarchy. So we are strictly Stephen and Matilda. Yeah, we're going full on anarchy. So before we get into it, I know you do have a book on this topic. Do you want to tell us about the name of that book? I do. Uh, it's called Stephen and Matilda's uh, Civil War, and it's subtitled Cousins of Anarchy, which I think is a catchy little subtitle. It sure is. So we can find that on Amazon and bookstores and everything like that, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, hopefully, if you know bookstores are opening up again, hopefully 
um, some bookstores somewhere will be stocking it. Otherwise, it's available online. Perfect. Okay, so just as a quick refresher then, since this is technically a Tudor's podcast, not all of our listeners know much about the story of Stephen and Matilda um, or the period known as the anarchy. Can you give us a quick overview of who they are and why this story is significant? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so we're in the 12th century here. So Henry the First dies in 1135 and is succeeded by his nephew as King Stephen. Uh, and Stephen then reigns for 19 years until 1154. And for much of that period, he is challenged for the throne by his cousin, uh, Empress Matilda, who is the only remaining legitimate child of Henry I. Henry I holds a, a record in English and British history for the most illegitimate children with at least 22. But in terms of succession to the throne, they're not of any real use to him. So Henry has one legitimate son and one legitimate daughter. And his legitimate son, around whom he had built all of his dynastic hopes and plans, is killed in the what's known as the White Ship Disaster in November 1120, crossing the channel from Normandy to England. And so this throws all of Henry's plans um, into to tumult. You know, he doesn't know what to do. Uh, he marries again almost immediately to desperately try and have another son and heir. But that marriage doesn't produce any children. Uh, and on his death, there is uh, a, a real spate of really fast activity in which Stephen reaches London and is crowned as the new King of England. Um, and then Matilda kind of refuses to give up on her claims to her father's throne. Um, uh, Henry has had all of his barons swear to recognise Matilda as their ruler once he's gone. But they obviously, um, for, for reasons, um, abandon that oath. They feel themselves excused from that oath. Um, and so it starts off as a fairly slow-burning affair, to be honest. From 1135 to 1139, not too much really happens. Stephen is actually fairly safe on the throne and reasonably successful. Um, he manages to subdue Scottish invasions. Uh, he manages to bring law and order back to, to England and is initially seen as quite popular and quite successful. And then in 1139, Matilda suddenly starts to really press her claims for the throne. She starts off by going to the Second Lateran Council, so a big meeting of the church in front of the Pope to try and press her case. But the Pope can't be persuaded to intervene and sort of washes his hands of the whole affair. Matilda can't get any support from her husband, Geoffrey of Anjou. He's really not interested in the English throne. He's keen on taking the, the Dukedom of Normandy. Uh, Counts of Anjou had, had long coveted the Duchy of Normandy, um, but he has no real interest in England. So ultimately, in September 1139, Matilda rocks up on the south coast of England on her own, I say on her own, with her, her half-brother, Robert Duke of Gloucester, uh, Robert Earl of Gloucester, sorry. Um, and they end up heading to Bristol where they entrench themselves. And this begins a really long period of um, slow burning civil war. It really erupts. We get kind of in the whole of the anarchy, the whole of the 19 years, we get one real year of ding dong action. Um, so in February 1141, we have the Battle of Lincoln when Stephen, King Stephen is captured by Robert Earl of Gloucester's forces. He's held prisoner by Empress Matilda, and she 
manages to get herself into London and prepares to be crowned as Lady of the English to be the new ruler of England. But kind of on the eve of her coronation, she's driven out of London by a mob who've decided they don't want her to be their ruler anymore. She retreats to Winchester, which is where the Royal Treasury is still held at this time, so an important city. Um, But in September 1141, she is driven out of there by an army loyal to King Stephen. And her half-brother, Robert Earl of Gloucester, is captured during what's called the Rout of Winchester. Um, he's He stays behind to fight a rearguard action to allow Matilda to escape, but Robert is eventually captured. And Robert had been Matilda's military leader, uh, and without him, she realises that she's really going to struggle. So then we get this big, long prisoner exchange process in which Stephen is effectively swapped for Robert um, in November 1141, Uh, There's a really convoluted process of hostages and and a sequence in which prisoners are all released. Um, So by the end of 1141, really, the chessboard is kind of reset to where it had been at the start of that year. We've had the big battle. We've had the king captured. We've had Matilda trying to get herself crowned, being driven out of London. Her forces being driven off by an army that was still loyal to the captive Stephen. Her half-brother being captured and then this big prisoner exchange. And things are almost back to where they were at the start of 1141, except that I would argue Stephen's position is somewhat bolstered. He's emerged from his captivity, still wearing the crown, and contemporaries are able to see this as his capture was a demonstration of God withdrawing favour from Stephen for for whatever reason he needed to to set things right. But his release uh, and his emergence, still wearing the crown of England, really said to all of the contemporaries that God has restored favour in King Stephen. Whatever it was that God was unhappy about, he's now perfectly happy with Stephen. So in lots of ways, Stephen's position is actually bolstered by the the tumultuous events of 1141 and even his own period in captivity. And it almost returns to the stalemate that we'd had before. And towards the end of the 1140s then, um, Matilda's allies begin to to pass away, her half-brother Robert significantly, but other key allies and and former allies of her father are also passing away. And it must have become clear by this point that she just couldn't get the crown. It just wasn't going to happen for her. But what she did do was preserve her claim and keep it alive for the benefit of her son. So she began to talk about her oldest son, Henry, being the rightful heir to his grandfather, Henry I. And she really stuck around to keep that those embers burning on behalf of her son, uh, young Henry. Um, But she leaves England in 1148. And by 1149, Henry, who's 16 at this point, um, is in England. He manages to traipse all the way from the south to the north of England to have himself knighted by his great uncle, David, who was King of Scots. Um, They toy with the idea of attacking Stephen, but it's still pretty clear that Stephen is, is largely in control of most of England. And so Henry has to retreat back over the sea um, to the the continent for a while, where his father has succeeded in um, conquering Normandy and pretty much hands it over to to Henry at this point. And then in 1153, Henry tries again. He invades England again. um, And by this point, there's a really strong sense that the barons are just fed up of this continual fighting. And with Stephen having a son, Eustace, 
Matilda having her son Henry, it's clear that this is just going to carry on into the next generation and there's no end in sight to all of this turmoil. And although lots of people tend to see the barons in the anarchy as this kind of uh, cowboy bunch, you know, just out for their own, uh, out for what they can gain out of the chaos, that's not really the case because the barons at this time do well when things are quite settled. So they need to work their land. They need to, to be able to get products to market, to sell it. That's how they make their money from their their lands and their tenants um, and all of those kinds of things. So the the uncertainty of all of these years of Stephen's reign has kind of damaged their ability to do that. So it's the barons that we start to see making peace. They start to make peace between themselves. They make these things called conventios, um, which are agreements between various barons on, you know, it'll be a baron on Stephen's side will make a, a conventio with a baron on Empress Matilda or Henry's side, promising not to attack their lands, promising to never take more than 10 knights into battle against um, whoever it was they were making this agreement with. So it really minimalizes any impact that the continued fighting is going to have. Uh, and as Stephen and Henry kind of try to come to blows, both of them seem to want a battle and a fight. And, and on at least two occasions, their armies line up on either side of a river um, and it's probably the barons arranging it so there's this big river between them so that they can never actually have a fight. And there's a strong sense that it's the barons who are refusing to engage in this and sort of prolong the fighting and almost forcing their leaders to come to terms. Um, and we have kind of one account in which um, Stephen and Henry go to a, an island in the middle of one of these rivers to to have discussions. And, and you know, it's in secret, and yet some people manage to report it. But they say that Henry and Stephen are there, you know, cursing all of the barons that are with them. You know, we just can't get these guys to indulge in a big old scrap so that we can settle this once and for all. They just don't want to fight, you know, can't get the staff these days. But ultimately, all of this leads um, to, to Stephen seeking a way to make peace, which annoys his son Eustace, who wants to to keep his own claim to the English throne and sees that being threatened by Stephen's desire for peace. Eustace goes off on a rampage in the east of England uh, and unfortunately dies in quite mysterious circumstances. We don't really know what happened um, to, to Eustace. But that kind of clears the way for Henry to, to be appointed as Stephen's heir. So Stephen has another son, William, but William makes it pretty clear that he's not interested in the English throne. He's happy to just take you know a, a very nice earldom, lots and lots of money, and live quite comfortably without all of this trouble. Stephen effectively adopts Matilda's son, Henry, as his son and appoints him as his heir. But when Stephen dies, Henry is then accepted by both sides as you know the unity candidate. He's the one that will bring peace. Uh, Stephen's supporters are willing to accept him as heir. Matilda and Henry's supporters obviously are happy to see him back on the throne. And all of a sudden, all of that tension and division is able to just go away um, and we get the the reign of Henry II. So that's a kind of quick tour through the anarchy in the 12th century. That was a great tour. I think that um, that will actually clarify some of the questions that people had for us because the other listeners who don't really know that story might not understand why some of the questions from the listeners came in. So I think that's a great um a great overview. So we can start. Yeah, fantastic. First. It's always difficult to do these. Whist it's always difficult to do these whistle stop tours of a really big subject. But yeah, it's a it's a great it's a great subject with a lot of a lot of twists and turns. So 
That was an excellent overview. Thank you. All right. So uh, we're going to start off then with our first question from the Renaissance Chronicles. Uh, I don't know if the wording that they use is something that maybe you would use, but let's see how it goes. They ask, why did Matilda wait so long to care about the English throne? And I know that you mentioned it was kind of a slow burning wait before she started making a full press at it. So why do you think that that took so long for her? Yeah, I don't know that it was an issue of her caring about her claim to the English throne. I think she probably always cared and was acutely aware that she felt the English throne belonged to her. The question was, how do you make that stick? Um, And I think the reasons for it taking several years. So Stephen is crowned in 1135 and it's only 1139, four years later, when Matilda begins to really press her claims uh, and eventually makes it across to England. Um, so why the four-year gap? It's a fairly complex set of, of circumstances, really. So when her father, Henry I, dies in 1135, Matilda was kind of on the verge of open warfare with him on the southern borders of Normandy. She and her husband, Geoffrey, Count of Anjou, were claiming a set of castles that they said Henry had promised them as part of Matilda's dowry, but then refused to, to hand over. So they were not on good terms when Henry passed away. Um, Matilda was further away from England than other people, so much further than Stephen. She was on the south southern borders of Normandy. Stephen was in Boulogne, which is literally you know a short hop across the Channel to get to England. To add to this even more, Matilda is pregnant. Um, so moving at all, let alone moving quickly, was potentially problematical for Matilda in 1135. And she also has another son shortly after this as well. Um, I think we can throw into the mix the fact that, um, as I mentioned, Geoffrey, Count of Anjou, is utterly disinterested in England. I think Geoffrey was a man who understood his own limitations, perhaps understood that he was in danger of overreaching himself if he tried to claim too much. And I think he felt Normandy was was gettable. Normandy was doable, but England was just a little bit of a stretch too far. And so he had no interest in supporting Matilda's efforts to, to gain the crown of England. And so how, in the 12th century, how does a woman raise an army and press a claim if her husband is utterly disinterested? She would normally have expected her husband to... to back her, not necessarily just to back her, but because he would get his hands on that rich inheritance too. And perhaps Matilda had made it clear that she wanted England for herself and that it would not be Geoffrey's, and that was what put Geoffrey off. Um, It's hard to know, but certainly, you know, where does she get support when her husband isn't even remotely interested in this plan? And her half-brother, Robert, Earl of Gloucester, who becomes her, her greatest supporter during the time that she's in England, initially swears allegiance to Henry, uh, sorry, initially swears allegiance to Stephen and doesn't back his own half-sister. So we get this period where she hasn't even got her half-brother Robert on her side. There's kind of no one in her corner. Um, But she does keep this flame burning. So as I mentioned, in 1139, she goes to the, the Second Lateran Council and she puts her claim before the Pope in a bid to have the the Pope um, rule that Stephen is a usurper and an oath breaker because all of the barons of England have been made to swear this oath to recognise 
Matilda as Henry's heir, and that included Stephen. He had taken the oath. In fact, he'd argued and jostled with Robert, Earl of Gloucester, and what may well have been just a friendly rivalry about which one of them should go first to give the oath in terms of seniority and importance and that kind of thing. So, you know, Stephen's there saying, I'm the, the king's favourite uncle, and Robert's saying, yeah, but I'm his oldest natural son. And Stephen's going, yeah, but you're illegitimate, and I'm, you know, his real nephew. Um, and Stephen manages to swear the oath before Robert does. So Matilda ha- tries to have Stephen declared a usurper and an oath breaker. Stephen sends representatives to the Second Lateran Council as well, who start to throw around a whole load of mud about Matilda being an illegitimate child. Um, so as he said, Henry is famous for having so many illegitimate children. But Stephen tried to make the case that because Matilda's mother, who was also called Matilda just to confuse everything, um, she's sometimes known as Edith Matilda, to make it a little bit more simple. Um, he claimed, It's always helpful when they all have the same names. This is the trouble. You know, I go from the Wars of the Roses where everyone is called Richard, Henry or Edward or Elizabeth. Right, and, and all I, the ladies are Anne and Elizabeth. Yeah, and I go back to the anarchy where everyone is called Matilda or Henry. Uh, and, you know, it's no easy. I mean, almost every woman in this story is called Matilda. Stephen's wife is Queen Matilda. Um, and she's a first cousin of Empress Matilda as well as Stephen being a first cousin of Empress Matilda. So everyone is related to everyone and they all have the same name. Um, you know, they definitely needed to get a bigger baby book in the, the, 11th, the 12th century. Um, they seem to be stuck on the end page for the women. Um, <laughs> but Stephen tried to make the claim that um, Matilda's mother had, at one point, she'd lived in a convent in the care of her aunt. And Stephen tried to make the claim that she had been a nun at a, for a period. Um, and there's, there's a little bit of evidence to support that it's not 100% clear whether she was or wasn't um, a nun. She claimed that she wore a veil at some points, but not because she was a nun. Um, and Stephen tries to say that Henry I had gone to this nunnery and sort of abducted Edith Matilda and married her when you know marrying a nun isn't permitted. So therefore, the marriage was illegitimate and the children, including Matilda, were also illegitimate, and so she had no right to the throne. So Matilda gets kind of frustrated at the Second Lateran Council. The, the Pope, I think, just bottles the whole argument and, and threw his hands up and says, oh, I can't deal with this. Um, he's in a slightly difficult position because Stephen's been crowned and anointed as king, and that's a, a religious ceremony that's difficult to undo. But also, it was clear that most in England didn't want female rule, so the Pope really had no interest in allowing Matilda to succeed and but sort of washed his hands of the whole thing without ruling one way or the other. Um, but I think ultimately the big signal of her enduring passion and her belief that the throne of England was hers by right is the fact that in the end, at the end of 1139, she just gets on a ship and, and sails to England and says, right, I'll just go and do it myself then. Um, I mean, she's virtually on her own. She has her half-brother with her. But otherwise, you know, she lands at Arundel Castle and says, right, I'm here to claim the throne now. And, I mean, that must have taken a whole lot of nerve. She's got no backing, no real support, no real hope. She's been cast off by her husband, pushed aside by the Pope, and she still just gets on a ship and sails to England and says, right, I'll do it myself then. Well, it doesn't sound like her husband then will be on the list of answers to this next question. Uh, but Ellie Webster would like to know who were Matilda's strongest allies in the Civil War? 
See, you could argue that Jeffrey is definitely, I mean, he he's definitely on Matilda's side. I just don't think he's interested in England. But what he does do is almost relentlessly attack Normandy. So this is still the time when England and Normandy have the same rulers. So since William the Conqueror, um, they were split a little bit under William the Second when his older brother Robert was Duke of Normandy. Henry I has brought them back together. And lots of the magnates have a preference for having the same ruler on both sides of the channel because they own lands in both regions. And if you have a separate lord, there's a potential there for conflicts of, of loyalties and conflicts of interest. Um, but, and what Geoffrey does is relentlessly throughout Stephen's reign until he conquers it, he assaults Normandy. And this distracts Stephen. Um, it gives Stephen another problem to think about. I mean, at, at some points in the anarchy, Stephen is fighting a war on three or four or five fronts. Um, so in many ways, you know, I think it's remarkable that Stephen manages to die with the crown on his head. Um, but So Geoffrey does help Matilda's cause, not because he really wants to, but because he provides this kind of distraction um, for Stephen's efforts. But otherwise, her I mean, her key central ally during her time in England is her half-brother, Robert Earl of Gloucester, who is the oldest of those um, legions of illegitimate children that Henry I has. Um, and it's argued that, you know, Stephen was Henry I's favourite nephew and Robert was his favourite child, his favourite son. Um, he's, he's incredibly powerful on both sides of the channel, lots of land in Normandy, lots of land in England, uh, and the, the earldom of Gloucester um, and a wealthy heiress as a wife. And he really provides the military arm of Matilda's efforts in England. So part of the problem that a, a woman trying to gain a, a crown or, or to enforce her rule has is that there's no way for a woman to gather an army and take lead it onto the battlefield, except under some circumstances in her husband's name. But that's not what Matilda is trying to do. So Robert provides that kind of military focal point. And, and when they first arrive in England, there seems to be lots of speculation that Robert is going to claim the throne for himself, which, um, I mean, he could have done. He seems to have been really, really popular, incredibly capable, well-liked, but his illegitimacy um, is is seen as a, an absolute bar to taking um, the throne, um, to being a, a king. And he never seems to want it for himself either. He's very clear that he has no interest in pursuing his own claim to the throne. He's there to support his sister by this point. Um, and as I mentioned before, he, he initially swears allegiance to Stephen, but that relationship seems to sour. Um, there's lots of suspicions around. So Robert claims that Stephen tries to have him assassinated. Stephen is worried that Robert is going to use his lands in Normandy su to support Geoffrey's invasions. And all of that suspicion, I think, starts to become almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy where the, the two of them fall out. Um, and Robert suddenly remembers that he made that oath to, to support his half-sister, and that's what he should have been doing all along. But nevertheless, from that point onwards, he never wavers from Matilda's side. Um, there's a couple of other people who were really key to Matilda's cause. There's a, a man named Brian Fitzcount, um, who is an illegitimate son of the Duke of Brittany, um, and has been around Henry I's court. Um, and he, I think he becomes something like a father figure to Matilda. He's significantly older than her, um, is, you know, a fairly minor baron, but 
nevertheless, again, until the day he dies, is utterly loyal to Matilda. And there's a man named Miles of Gloucester, who, again, a fairly minor baron, but immediately goes to Matilda's side when she arrives in England. Um, But I think probably, you know, that list probably highlights how narrow her support was. And the fact that with, apart from her half-brother, Robert, um, and she has another half-brother, Reginald, who she makes Earl of Cornwall, who also joins her cause. Um, but apart from them, she she never manages to convert any of the, the senior nobility, the high-ranking barons, to her cause. And her support remains quite narrow. She's kind of strong enough not to be beaten, but she's not strong enough to, to beat Stephen either. And that's where the stalemate really develops, I think. Our next question is a tough one to answer because I know that it's always difficult to get our mindset out of 2021, but if you can do it, Suki Johanna asks, was there, uh, was Steve, I'm sorry, was Steven in any way justified in his beliefs or in usurping the right really granted by Matilda's father? I mean, that is a great question. Um, and I'm always happy to get my head out of 2021 and out of 2020 as well. I've had enough of them both. Um, Amen. <laughs> yeah. Um, suddenly the, the 12th century anarchy is starting to look really appealing. Right. Um, I would argue, yes, Stephen did have justifications for what he did, though others might well disagree. And this isn't to belittle Matilda's own claim, but part of the problem is kind of a, a technical one at this point, a legal problem. So in the 12th century, when a king died, there was no automatic succession of their heir. The first time that happened was uh, when Henry III died. So he he created the situation in which when he died in 1272, in the instant that he died, his son became Edward I automatically. There was no need for a coronation. But in the 12th century, that wasn't the case. So in the instant that the king died there was no ruler. There's a gap between the death of one king until the coronation of the next monarch. Um, I was going to say king, but in this case, it could have been a a female ruler. Um, So to some extent, the throne is up for grabs there. There is no automatic right of succession. Henry has identified Matilda as the person he wants to succeed him, but that doesn't automatically happen legally. So when Henry takes the throne, he's not really taking it from Matilda in the legal sense, she's not yet the ruler of England. And Henry I, you know, he would have been painfully aware of the potential for this problem because he himself had snatched the throne from his older brother, Robert, Duke of Normandy, um, when their middle brother, um, so Robert is the oldest, William II is the middle child and Henry the youngest um, of the William the Conqueror's surviving children. William the Conqueror leaves England to William. He leaves Normandy to Robert, who he doesn't seem to have liked very much. And he gives Henry a bit of cash and sends him off to make his way in the world. And when William II is killed in a a hunting accident, he's made an arrangement with Robert that if one of them dies without child, then the other will succeed. So when William dies without children, this agreement should have meant that Robert succeeded in England. But Henry is in the New Forest hunting with his brother William when William is shot. Um, and, and rather, you know, in a sign of fraternal love, rather than going and over and tending to his brother's body, Henry jumps on his horse and rides to Winchester, claims the royal treasury, rides on to London and has himself crowned king while his brother's body is still going cold on the floor of the New Forest. So Henry was painfully aware that this 
kind of thing could happen because he'd done it. Um, he then goes on to conquer Normandy. You know, Robert has been on crusade. He comes back and is pretty miffed with his little brother. Um, but Henry goes on the offensive, attacks Normandy, um, manages to to take Normandy, capture Robert at the Battle of Tinchbright and imprisons his oldest brother for the rest of his life. Um, so he could hardly complain when someone else does the same thing on his death. Um, as we mentioned before, when Henry dies, he's in dispute with Matilda and Geoffrey. They're almost on the verge of, of open warfare. And Stephen actually claims and has a couple of barons swear an oath that on his deathbed, Henry decided that he wanted Henry to succeed him. He was so hacked off with his daughter that he dispossessed her on his deathbed and, and gave the throne to Stephen instead. And that perhaps seemed believable to people, you know. They knew that Stephen was Henry's favourite nephew. He'd been incredibly well treated by Henry. Um, so the, the possibility that this could have happened probably seemed plausible to contemporaries, especially when you've got nobility swearing that they witnessed it too. Um or at least, you know, it's a very good excuse to sidestep the idea of female rule to believe what Stephen says. Um, we know that all of the barons, <clears throat> we know that all of the barons, some of them on two occasions, had sworn an oath to recognise Matilda as, as ruler of England on Henry's death, and that that had included Stephen. But they also claimed in the aftermath of Henry's death that They'd sworn that oath on the basis that they would be consulted over Matilda's remarriage. So she's widowed um, from her first marriage to Henry V, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, another Henry in her life. Um, and the barons say, you know, yes, we'll recognise her, but we want to say in who she remarries, because obviously her husband is potentially going to be a significant figure in the future of England. And they then go on to claim that Henry failed to to consult with them over the planned marriage to Geoffrey of Anjou, which they weren't in favour of. And so they felt that because Henry had broken that oath, that they were excused from observing it too. And so they no longer had to be held by the oath to, to recognise Matilda. And I think the other big consideration really is that in the, the immediate aftermath of Henry I's death, law and order completely collapsed in England. Scotland invaded uh, almost immediately, Wales began to rebel. And with no king, uh, there's no king's peace to be enforced. Uh, and this was really spiralling out of control in 1135. And so Stephen kind of steps into this vacuum, this desperate, desperate situation, and offers a solution. He says, I'll sort all of this out for you if you just recognise me as king. And so you know, Winchester allows him entry to the royal treasury, um, his younger brother, Henry, the Bishop of Winchester, yet another Henry, manages to help convince, get the church on his side. Um, Stephen makes this sort of compact with, with the city of London to recognise some of their rights and independence and to protect them and restore law and order if they recognise him as king. So they duly have him crowned king. Um, and that bond between Stephen and London is one that really endures throughout the anarchy as well. It's a, an interesting connection between the king and his capital city. Um, and so Stephen is kind of the right man in the right place at the right time in terms of restoring law and order. So I think if you add all of those aspects together, you know, you can make a, a compelling argument for Stephen at least having a right to chance his arm. That's what Henry I had done and it had worked for him. So 
I'd say probably Henry couldn't complain that, that Stephen did it after him. And there are arguments for Stephen having a, a perfectly legitimate right to do what he did. Now, during the time that she, quote unquote, reigned, I'm going to use that term very loosely because we know that she was never crowned. What was the model of queenship to which she aspired when handling her duties? That question comes from Larissa Marici. That's a really great question, Larissa. It's difficult because part of the problem, I think, is that there there was no model for female rule in England at this time. So in other parts of Europe on the continent, there were examples of successful female rulers, um, maybe not always wearing a crown, but there were examples of, of powerful women who ruled their territories. But that notion had never reached across the channel and, and found a home in England. So Matilda really had no model, but it wasn't just Matilda that was lacking a model. It was all of the barons and the, the structures of power within England had no point of reference, had no context for what to do with female rule. So I think Matilda was left with the task in 1141, particularly when she captures Stephen and is making her way to London to, to try and be crowned. She kind of needs to craft a position for herself. She needs to create this model of what female rule could look like and then sell it to the rest of the country so that they would accept her. And I think it's interesting that most of the sources say that she planned to have herself crowned as Lady of the English. Um, so this has echoes back to Anglo-Saxon times. Uh, uh, there was a lady called Ethelfled, who was a daughter of King Alfred the Great, uh, and she ruled the Kingdom of Mercia, uh, which kind of covered the Midlands area of England, where I'm sitting at the moment. Um, and Ethelfled was known as, as Lady of the Mercians. So this was a, a designation that pointed to a woman who was exercising power in her own right, on her own authority. So the word king had very specific connotations. It meant a man who ruled and who could raise armies and go onto a battlefield. It was very, people were very clear what a king was and what that word meant. And similarly, the word queen had by this point very specific connotations in, in England. A queen was the wife of a king. It wasn't a woman who ruled in her own right. You know, later on in the Tudor period, we'll talk about um, Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth I. But a queen didn't mean a woman who, who ruled in her own right. There was no notion of a queen regnant in the 12th century. Um, and so Matilda couldn't really adopt that model. She couldn't use the word queen because it would muddy the waters of what she was trying to do. So she seemed to latch on to this. How she arrived at it, we're not sure. You know, did she know her Anglo-Saxon history? Um, her her mother was from the House of Wessex, so perhaps she had a, a good grounding in Anglo-Saxon English history. Perhaps she she reached out to search for an idea of some time in the English history where a woman had exercised power that she could kind of align herself with to show people what she was trying to do. So she seems to have settled on this title of Lady of the English in an effort to, to create the model by which she would, would rule and try and sell her queenship. And ultimately, we know that that wouldn't work for her. It, it, it failed. She, she couldn't get to the point of actually having herself crowned. But that seemed to have been the way that she decided to move forward. She wanted to be effectively a female king, but not to call herself a queen. So she went for Lady of the English. 
Our next listener question comes from Rebecca Lyon, and it's such a fun one that kind of elicits like a feeling of maybe a fairy tale or a legend. But can you tell us a little bit about the white cloaked escape from Oxford Castle? Oh, definitely. This this is Empress Matilda's. I mean, she lives a Hollywood life. I mean, her her story is is so incredible. But this definitely is, sounds like Hollywood so far. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, there is so much going on, but this is lifted straight out of a Hollywood movie this moment. Um, so we are in 1142. So just after all of that 1141 trouble, um, Empress Matilda um, tries to convince her husband at this point to come and help her. It's all not worked out for her in 1141. Um, her husband is doing quite well in Normandy, which is great. It's distracting Stephen and causing him another problem, but it isn't really helping her in England in a practical sense. So she reaches out to Jeffrey and says, you know, will you help me? And Jeffrey says, well, how about you send your brother, your half brother, Robert to come and explain the situation. You know, I know him. I'm happy to talk to him. And Matilda and, and her advisors aren't very happy about this idea because Robert represents the military arm of Matilda's effort, but Jeffrey won't budge. Robert's the only person he'll trust and the only person he'll talk to. So eventually it's agreed that Robert will go over to, to Normandy uh, and ultimately, it turns out that Geoffrey um, is just using Robert to get his hands on Robert's Norman lands and to, to raise them in favour of Geoffrey's attempts to conquer Normandy. So it is a little bit of a trick, really. But while Robert is out of the country, Stephen sees his opportunity to really go after Matilda and kind of bring all of this matter to an end. So he um, corners Matilda in Oxford. Um and Matilda is is besieged in the castle. So Stephen assaults the town at one point, um, tries to to get into the castle, um, but can't quite bring it to its knee. So eventually decides to to starve it out. Uh, and all of the sources say that Stephen is utterly adamant that he is not leaving Oxford until he's got Empress Matilda. You know, nothing is going to distract him from this siege. This is his end game. And the castle is on the verge of starvation. So they run out of supplies inside. They're, they're having to, to seriously consider giving in. The, the Jester Stefani, um, which is a, a source uh, nominally quite favourable to Stephen. Uh, so Jester Stefani means the acts of Stephen. Um, and this talks about the garrison being reduced to extremity of hunger. Um, and so Empress Matilda realising that the castle is going to fall at any moment and there's a chance the men inside the castle will hand her over to, to get their own freedom and some food, decides to take this incredible step of sneaking out of the castle. Um, so this is, is late in the winter, in December 1142. It's snowing, it's bitingly cold, um, and all of the sources... They describe it slightly differently. Some describe her sneaking out of a postern gate in the castle, so a, a hidden sort of side door. Others talk about her being lowered out of a, a window in the tower on ropes. Um, but they all say that she selected um, several knights to join her, uh, three knights um, who were, you know, the best amongst those that were left in the castle with her. Um, and they sneak out of the castle. So they managed to cross... The, the River Thames, which was frozen over. Um, and she picks her way through 
Stephen's royalist camp, managing to avoid you know all of the watches that are out um, looking for enemy soldiers, picks their way. They pick their way through this, um, and it's uh, one of the sources that that particularly talks about her um, wearing a, a white cloak to do so. So Henry of Huntingdon um, records that she she and the knights covered themselves in white cloaks to kind of camouflage themselves in the snow. And so they managed to pick their way out of the castle um, across the frozen river Thames and all the way through all of the Royal camp in the dark of night and sort of camouflaged with their white cloaks um, against the snow. Um, and they, the sources all talk about this being in the same sort of way as Stephen's release from prison was kind of, a mark of the favor of God that this was too. And, the, and they, they go to great lengths to talk about the fact that, you know, the hem of Matilda's dress didn't even get wet in the snow. It was almost like she's walking on water at this point. Um, but she manages to make it, you know, many miles um, to the nearest sort of safe town of Wallingford. And then she has to be carried on a litter back to Bristol because she's, you know, exhausted um, and on the verge of collapse Um and we get the, the Jester Stefani, you know, writes in complete amazement about the episode. And, and the writer says, I've never read of another woman so luckily rescued from so many mortal foes and from the threat of danger so great. Um, and so everyone is impressed by this moment of, I think, you know, personal bravery. If Matilda had been captured, she maybe she wouldn't have expected to have been killed by Stephen, but that would have been the end of her cause altogether. So you get this real... Hollywood tension moment of personal bravery sneaking through the royal camp, you know, across a frozen river camouflaged uh, and, and escaping to, to freedom. Um, and Stephen, you know, wakes up the next morning and is utterly distraught to find out that Matilda has managed to slip through uh, and escape his grasp once again. Now, earlier in our talk, you mentioned Matilda being chased or driven out of London by a mob, which I'm sure made the great Copite's ears perk up when he heard that, because he wrote a question about that. Just wondering if you could give us a little more background about how that happened and what that scene kind of looked like. Yeah, so um, I think, you know, the country and by the country at this point, I mean the barons and the, the wealthy merchant classes within London um freaked out at the idea of female rule i think it's it's both as simple and as complex as that i don't think they could compute what it would mean or how it would work to have a woman actually fully in charge and i think the the episode of matilda you know nearing her coronation while stephen is in captivity kind of exposes part of the problem with examining women during this period as well um it, it had taken Matilda weeks, um, spilling into almost months to negotiate her entry into London. I mean, can you imagine a king having to negotiate entry into his capital city? He would have stormed in and everyone would have applauded him for it. But Matilda couldn't do that. Um, all of the chroniclers of this period are, are men. And so they probably share, you know, they're monks, but they share that kind of misogynistic worldview that women shouldn't wield power. I almost said women should know their place, but I'd probably get kicked off the podcast if I said that, <laughs> but I've just said it anyway. It was probably a mistake. I'm sorry. Um, we know that's not how you think. <laughs> um, but you know, so, so if she tries to behave like a man, it's seen as something absolutely awful and terrifying and, and something that can't be comprehended. 
So she's on her way to be crowned as Lady of the English after kind of weeks and weeks of negotiating to get to this position. Uh, and she and her household are, are in London. They sit down for a feast. We don't know that it was really, you know, on the actual eve of the, the day of her coronation, but it's, it's billed as, you know, on the verge, on the moment of her coronation. She sits down to this feast. And all of a sudden, London sparks and, and you know, flies into rebellion. And there's people charging through the streets of London. Part of this is egged on by Stephen's wife, Queen Matilda, who has managed to gather a force and sort of whip them up into a bit of a frenzy. But London join in as well. Uh, and they're, they're kind of running rampage through the streets to the point where uh, Matilda and her household have to flee London so quickly that the sources all talk about these rebels bursting into the, the lodging where she'd been staying and managing to sit down and enjoy the feast while it was still hot. They'd abandoned it in such a hurry. They'd left, you know, hot food on the table. And the mob was there so soon after they'd gone that they were able to sit down and, and still eat it all while it was hot. But we get lots of the, the famous quotes about Matilda coming from this period in, in 1141. So from our misogynistic monkish chroniclers, um, Henry of Huntingdon says that, at this time, Matilda was elated with insufferable pride uh, and that she alienated from her the hearts of most men. So, you know, clearly he's keen to make it her fault. Um, she She's insufferably proud and, you know, we just can't work with this woman. The the writer of the Jester Stefani um, says that visitors were, were received ungraciously and at times with unconcealed annoyance. Well, she was annoyed with London. They made her negotiate her way into the town, into the city. She'd asked them for taxation similar to what they granted to Stephen, and they pled poverty and said that they couldn't afford to give her any money. And she kind of lost a rag and said, you know, you can find money for Stephen, you can find money for me. So she had, you know, she was annoyed with London and she had to some extent alienated some of the, the people in London with her behaviour. But again, behaviour that you think would have been applauded in a prince who was stamping his authority on the moment, but in a woman, they just can't get their heads around this. Um, interestingly, the, the Justice Stefani also says that she, in 1141, she showed an extremely arrogant demeanour and says that she began to walk and speak and do all things more stiffly and more haughtily than she was wont. And I think that's quite an interesting quote because it kind of implies that she wasn't always viewed as behaving that way as though something changed in 1141. Um, so he's allowing that she was normally, you know, a, a reasonable, nice person who could get on with. And, and all of the evidence from her earlier years, particularly when she's a child in the, the empire being married to, to Henry V, is that people really liked Matilda. They thought she was nice, she was competent, and all of these kinds of things. But in 1141, that changes. And it starts to get a whiff of this being the men making the excuses for why they don't want to deal with this woman. Um, you know, so she's changed. And we just can't deal with her anymore. Um, we know that, you know, when her son becomes king, he he leans on his mother quite heavily to begin with, and she's well-liked and respected. Um, so all of the bad things that we know about her reputation really originate from this pressure cooker environment in 1141. And I think it's really a way of explaining the opposition to her without saying we're a bunch of men who can't cope with the idea of a woman being in charge. They start picking fault with her personality as the reasons why she just isn't suitable to rule England. That's a great segue into our next question from Katie Ray, because she wants to jump ahead a little bit and talk now about Henry II's reign, which of course was Matilda's son. 
um, you just mentioned that he leaned heavily on her. So we wanted to know how much influence she had once he took the throne. Did she maybe try to kind of rule vicariously through him since she never had her chance? Or was she, you know, hands off and let him have his moment, so to speak? What do you think she, how did she behave when he was ruling? I think this must have been incredibly hard for Matilda because she spent years desperately trying to press her claim as the daughter of the last king, the the person who he had appointed his heir, who everyone had sworn allegiance to, and she just couldn't make it stick. Um, And in 1153, it must have felt a little bit like her son swans over to England and says, I'm here now. And everyone goes, oh, great, a man. We know what we're doing now. You can be king if you like. Um, So she must have felt like that was a little bit of a kick in the teeth. But at the same time, it was also what she'd worked for um, for the the last few years before it happened. She kind of realized she wasn't going to get there and just worked to preserve Henry's position. But I think Henry becoming king allows Matilda to step back into this much more recognized and acceptable and clearly defined notion of female power, that kind of soft power that women can operate but it's on behalf of a man. So she'd done it again in the empire when she was married to Henry V. She had moments where she was wielding real power on behalf of her husband. So while she's just a teenager, she spends um, several months um, ruling uh, a portion of Italy on Henry's behalf. Um, It's very clearly as his wife, but also he's on the other side of the Alps. He goes back to Germany and leaves her in Italy um, to, to rule this, this land. So, she had experience of doing this and she understood how this worked. And more importantly, everyone else now understood that she could wield power because it's on behalf of a man. So we can now revert to you know, all of that trouble of 1141 from the Chroniclers has gone. And we're now back to the the nice flowery Matilda who we all like and we know and we respect. And she's actually a great ruler. So when Henry becomes king, she um, is back in Normandy. Henry obviously becomes King of England, but he's also Duke of Normandy. He's Duke of Aquitaine. He owns Maine and Anjou. So he has this sprawling empire from the the border of Scotland in the north of England all the way down to the Alps and, and kind of he could go and dip a toe in the Mediterranean and then wander all the way up to the North Sea and freeze his little toes off in the North Sea. And it, one man couldn't do all of that himself. He obviously has an incredibly capable wife in Eleanor of Aquitaine. Um, and he he is happy to lean fairly heavily on the women in his life to represent him. And Matilda really becomes his effective regent in Normandy. She basically rules Normandy on behalf of her son. And she's, again, she's well-liked there. She's well-respected. Her authority is is well-respected. And I think it kind of allows her to slip back into that accepted pattern. So rather than having to fight, fight the patriarchy, she's back to being able to just live her life, um, support her son, and enjoy a bit of of freedom and authority within Normandy. So Henry is very happy to lean on his mother, uh, at least for the beginning of his reign. He does um, kind of wean himself off that a little bit. I think as he gets his feet under the table, he starts to push his mother's authority away a little bit, which I guess is probably a natural expression of his desire to to take control of things himself. and we do have an episode where she um, advises Henry not to appoint Thomas Beckett as uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. 
um, because during her time in the empire, she saw Henry V um, do something very similar. He appointed one of his um, favourite and most loyal councillors as a senior archbishop, and that man immediately went against the emperor and caused untold trouble. And so Matilda warns Henry not to appoint Thomas Becket because it will cause trouble. And, and Henry kind of declines to listen to her advice by this point. And he maybe would have done well to have, have kept listening for a little bit longer. Um, but yeah, so I think she slips back into this position that everybody can now go back to appreciating the hard work and respecting the, the work that she does as Henry's representative. It's very hard for me not to continue talking about Thomas Beckett right now, but we will stop with that <laughs> one. And we will, story. That's a whole other story. We'll talk about that in a completely different podcast. But yeah. so Terry G. Jones Jr. now had a question about Eleanor of Aquitaine, who, of course, was Henry's wife. These are now Matilda and Eleanor, two strong women who women who could easily have butted heads in you know moments where Henry isn't necessarily present. So, what do you think their relationship was like between these two women? It's a really tough question, and I would love to have been a fly on the wall when they met. I mean, they were two absolute powerhouses of their age. Um, they must have shared a common goal by this point. They both wanted Henry to be as powerful as he could possibly be, because that obviously influences their positions as well. We don't really have the evidence of a, a relationship between them to know, you know, did they have a, a lot in common so that they got on really well? Did they become fast friends in an, in an effort to support Henry? Or did they rub up against each other because they were so similar um, and both such strong personalities? Unfortunately, I don't think we have the evidence to really tell us that question. Um, but for a lot of the time as well, they're, they're not operating in the same kind of sphere. So um, Matilda spends most, well, spends the rest of her life really in Normandy. Um, Eleanor is fairly often left as Henry's regent in England um, and is always keen to go back to, to her home in Aquitaine. So I don't think there was the opportunity really for there to be too much friction in the sense that Henry kept them I don't know whether it was deliberate, maybe it was, but he kept them in kind of separate spheres so that they, I mean, he had to spread his his um, resources around, I guess, and his mom and Eleanor were two of his really key resources in being able to project his authority across such a, a vast collection of land. So um, they were quite separate, I think, for most of the time, but I don't think we have the, the evidence to really say whether they liked each other um, or tolerated each other. I would like to think that they did love each other and that was not a deliberate <laughs> act on his part. I, I imagine them sitting, you know, in the window of a castle with a glass of, of red wine each, just sitting there going, men. Exactly. Plotting how to not know their place going forward. Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, that would have been uh, a room to be in nothing. That would have been a, to be a fly on the wall. Exactly. Talking about the world. Absolutely incredible. So our last question comes from Bex JD. After all of her experiences, what do you think Matilda would have given? I'm sorry. What advice do you think Matilda would have given to her son and her daughter-in-law? This is, this is a really hard question. And I mean, perhaps we see, or maybe what advice do you think you'd want her to give? Yeah. I, I think we see her advice is there for Henry in terms of, him being willing to to rely on her heavily in Normandy. So 
she can give him a, a demonstration of how proper authority can be wielded. Um, I think it's hard because their their situations were different. You know, Henry, as I mentioned earlier, Henry kind of comes to the throne as the the unity candidate, so he's accepted by everybody, which is very different to the situation Matilda had found herself in. Um, Henry was even handed with with both sides in the dispute, and he worked quite hard to bring them all together. So he was fair, but when he was hard, he was hard on both. Stephen's former supporters and his mother's former supporters equally. And perhaps that was Matilda's influence because I think she spent years trying to prize the barons away from the king and realising that that was a difficult thing to do. You know, she failed to get any of the senior nobility away from Stephen's side, really. Um, Stephen had retained the support of the overwhelming majority of the nobility and she perhaps was able to counsel Henry that that was a key to retaining power. Whilst you don't want to give the barons the sense that they have too much authority, in reality, keeping them on side is the best way to keep yourself on the throne. She, This would be the experience of her being unable to overcome this. You know, So if Henry could get the barons loyal to him and on his side, then that would make him much more secure on his throne. Um, so I think you know she would have been able to give him the benefit of her experience, but from a very different perspective from the the one that he enjoyed. And I, I'd like to think that you know, Henry II, I think we think of him as quite a hard man and undoubtedly he was. But if you look at the way he behaves in the first two or three years of his reign in particular, he's really conciliatory. He's really keen to bring everybody together. He's really keen not to alienate anybody. You know, he reclaims lots of royal castles, but he reclaims them equally from his mother's supporters as he does from Stephen's supporters. So there is no sense that he's punishing one side or the other to drive them back into rebellion. And I'd like to think that that's perhaps Matilda, you know, whispering in his ear saying, you've just got to bring everybody together. You've got to get everybody on your side. And that's how you stay on the throne. Well, Matt, on behalf of all of our listeners, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us and for giving us some of your time today. Uh, I really enjoyed our chat. So for those of us that are still interested in your books and articles or have any more questions for you, how can we find you on social media? Uh, I am on Twitter far too much. Um, at Matt Lewis author. Uh, I have a Facebook page as well as Matthew Lewis. Um, I could do with a different name because the guy who played Neville Longbottom in the Harry Potter films is called Matthew Lewis and he steals all my thunder and blue ticks all over the place. So uh, I'm not the most famous Matthew Lewis around by a long stretch. Um, but I'm In on... our community, you certainly are. And <laughs> <laughs> um, the Neville Longbottom of the history community, I'll take that. Um, <laughs> right. So I'm on Twitter and Facebook a fair bit. Um, I am on Instagram um, more recently. Uh, I try and post a few pictures on there and bits and pieces um i have a blog um at matt lewis uh oh i can't remember the name of my blog <laughs> matt lewis author at wordpress um and uh yeah you know i I've, I've got my own podcast now called gone medieval for for dan snow's history hit so um we're starting to explore various aspects of the medieval period so if i can lure any of your listeners away from the tudor period please look up gone medieval uh, and come and join me over there. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm 
always more than happy to answer questions. My my books are around on online or, or hopefully in bookstores when people can get back to bookstores. But I, I love receiving questions. I love chatting about all of this stuff, uh, even if I lose far too many hours getting involved in discussions about all sorts of medieval issues. Well, thank you. We'll be sure to reach out again then. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Steph. I really enjoyed that. I hope I've done the, the topic justice. It really is a fascinating moment in history. So thank you for having me. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by leaving a review wherever you listen. Reviews are some of the greatest gifts that you can leave a podcaster because it suggests their show to people who may not have even known it existed. So thank you so much for your support. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.